Let's pray, shall we, as we look at that passage together. When Isaiah was first commissioned, he had a vision of God and his holiness, the angels singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And Isaiah's response was to say, woe, I'm ruined, I'm a man of unclean lips. And Lord, we come before you well aware that we are people who are unclean, we're not fit to be in the presence of a holy God. Uh, And we pray that by your spirit you would speak to us, help me as I speak, help us as we listen, to hear your holiness, but also to hear your grace and to receive it for our lives this night and for always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are in the 47th chapter of Isaiah, if you've been following our series. And uh, if you'd have that open in front of you, that would be a great help to me and hopefully also to you. Uh, in September 1934, a man stood before a great crowd of half a million people in uh, Nuremberg in Germany. And he pledged that he would build an empire that would last for a thousand years. No prizes for guessing who it was. It was Adolf Hitler promising the uh, reign of the Third Reich, as uh, it was called. And yet less than 12 years after making that statement, uh, his empire lay in ruins. Thousands of people, millions, had died uh, pursuing it. Uh, Most of its leaders were captured or had been killed. It had all come to a very, very sorry end. It ended in failure. There was a poet uh, called Alexander Pope, and he made a a wise observation that pride is the never-ending vice of fools. I think that's quite a... Good observation. Pride is the never-ending vice of fools. It was true for Nazi Germany, and it's true for Babylon in the passage that we have before us this evening. Technically, it is what is called a taunt song, if you were, uh, want to give it a name. Uh, that is, it's a, a poem or a song that is sung about a, uh, a defeated nation by its conquerors, the people who have uh, vanquished it in defeat. It's quite a common phenomenon in the ancient world. You get a few of them in the Bible and in other uh, bits of ancient literature. But what sets this particular example apart is actually that it's a taunt song that is about an event that is yet to happen. Uh, Isaiah is looking ahead to the future. uh, And God reveals to him that the Babylonians, the empire that has been enslaving uh, God's people, are going to be defeated. They're going to be defeated through a guy called Cyrus, who is the Persian ruler who will come in and sweep through. And it's a story that's referenced in the Bible in chapter 6 of Daniel, if you want to go and look it up. And and so it it has a particular historical context, and we need to be aware of that, and and Isaiah is speaking into that particular situation. And yet, at the same time, as is common in prophecy in general in the Bible, it has another level of meaning. Babylon, as mentioned in in this passage, as referenced, is symbolic of all human opposition to God throughout all history, throughout all time, since the beginning of time. And the fate that Isaiah speaks of for Babylon, uh, the fate of judgment, is one that is a fate that awaits all people who refuse to turn to God and turn away from sin and pride and power abuse and all those things that break God's heart. It's a, a sort of It works on two levels, and that's something to bear in mind as we go through it. Uh, Isaiah's song divides into uh, three sort of stanzas or sections, uh, and each of them gives us a reason, I think, 
why this situation has come about and why Babylon is in the situation uh, that it's in. So let's uh, dive in, shall we? Uh, Reason number one, uh, Isaiah says that it is a punishment from God. If you have your Bibles open in front of you, you might want to uh, look at verse uh, one with me. Isaiah says, Go down, sit in the dust, virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, daughter of the Babylonians. No more will you be called tender or delicate. Take millstones and grind flour. Take off your veil. Lift up your skirts. Bear your legs and wade through the streams. Your nakedness will be exposed and your shame uncovered. I will take vengeance. I will spare no one. Isaiah's meditation opens with a, a powerful description of the fate that awaits Babylon. It's one that is, is full of humiliation. Uh, imagery of being stripped bare of power and fame, sitting in the dust. This nation that has previously sat enthroned uh, across all other nations, high above them, is dethroned. It's interesting to note in passing from history that um, never again was Babylon the capital of an empire after uh, it fell to Cyrus. Isaiah's words were proved true. Uh, Previously, Babylon had been one of the great centres of wealth and prosperity in the Eastern world. It was famous for a party culture uh, of good living, people seeking, uh, seeking pleasure and uh, getting drunk and uh, partying, seeking after good living. And all that is going to be changing. Isaiah says, hard labour follows. Take Verse 2, take millstones and grime flour. Take off your veil. Imagery to slavery and, uh, and hard work. Even worse, he says, there's a promise of exile. So that reference to wading through streams in verse 2. Uh, it's sort of a reference to, to having to cross over rivers. This idea that uh, the Babylonians are going to be exiled. There's going to be potentially rape and shame, verse 3. Their skirts are going to be lifted up, this idea that people are going to be, uh, be raped. It's going to be sexually, uh, sexual humiliation. Ultimately, no one is going to be exempt, end of verse 3. I will take vengeance, says the Lord, and I will spare no one. No one will be exempt. What lies behind all this... Um, it's terrible imagery. Well, verse 4, I think, gives um, Isaiah's answer. Uh, and in doing so, I think it is also the key that unlocks this passage to help us understand it. Isaiah says that it is God himself who is behind all this. He is the one who is acting in consistency with his character, and he's acting on behalf of his people. Isaiah says plenty of things. There's lots in this verse, incredibly rich, verse 4. He's our redeemer, says Isaiah, our redeemer, personal redeemer, the one who comes alongside his people to purchase them from the slavery of sin and to secure their freedom. He is the Lord Almighty, that is his name, says Isaiah. He is the one who is supreme in power and might. He is far above anything else in all creation. He can accomplish whatever he desires, whatever he wants to do, He can do it. He is all-powerful. He's the one before whom all earthly powers will bow down. He is the Lord Almighty. Finally, Isaiah says he's the Holy One, the Holy One of Israel. He's holy in his majesty, his otherness. He's holy in his purity. There is none as pure as God. Time after time, the Bible affirms for us this, this quality of holiness in God. In fact, it's, it's the description that is used of God more than any other in the Bible. It's the, the, the description that the Bible chooses most of all 
to, to use to talk about God. In fact, you could almost say, I guess, that, that to call God holy is almost the, I guess, is the fullest description that we could have of God. He is other. There is something tangibly different about God. He is pure, holy, other. No other quality quite captures God's essence in the way that calling him holy does. And the Bible explains that because God is holy, therefore he must hate sin. He has to. If he didn't, if he overlooked it, then that would be inconsistent with his character. There'd be something wrong with that if a holy God overlooked sin. Uh, The Bible says that God's constant call to his people is, be holy, for I am holy. It always resounds through the Old Testament. Be holy, for I am holy. And on to the New Testament. Uh, And no wonder Isaiah looks ahead and he declares that Babylon is going to get punished. Babylon will will be punished in full for her sin, because it can't be any other way. If God didn't punish sin, something would be desperately, desperately wrong. I don't know about you, but I think that vision of God that Isaiah had is something that sits very uncomfortably in our 21st century Western world. Um, Most of us, including me, would much rather dwell on God's love, uh, his care, his compassion, his mercy, rather than his holiness, or his wrath, his anger that burns against sin. And yet whilst God is love... He is merciful, he's slow to anger, abounding in love. He is also holy, and because he is holy, he hates sin with a passion that we can't even begin to imagine. And if we don't spend some time dwelling on God's holiness, we run the very, very, very real risk of misrepresenting God. In fact, we're almost essentially making him into an idol. We are denying him some bits in order to make him into the God that we really want him to be, the warm, cuddly, cosy God who just dispenses words originals. He's like an indulgent grandpa. That's not the Bible's God. He's not Santa Claus. He is holy. He is other. Recently I heard a story of a vicar who was preaching through Isaiah, and uh, he was rightly stressing this holiness aspect of God, that God hates sin. And this is something that is true of his character. Uh, And uh, he was confronted by a member of his congregation. Didn't like what he was uh, saying, uh, didn't think that he should be, uh, be doing this. And uh, rather dramatically, she, she came to see him. And in front of his eyes, this true story, apparently ripped him half the Bible, took the Old Testament bit and threw it in the Bible, presented him with the New Testament bit and said, preach that. That's what I want to hear. It's a bit of an extreme example, isn't it? I, hopefully that's not going to be uh, your response to me uh, on Monday morning. And yet I think it actually does point to a truth, doesn't it? That few of us want to dwell on this side of God's character. And yet the Bible says that we have to, otherwise we are in danger of misrepresenting him. If we deny God's holiness and his wrath at sin, his hatred for sin and all that goes against him, we can't at the same time say that he is gracious and forgiving and merciful, because essentially we are misrepresenting him. We are saying that God is not consistent in his character. The Bible says that God is always against sin, just as he is loving and forgiving. We can't misrepresent God. God is a holy God, and so he must punish sin. Isaiah is very clear, I think. It's something that resounds through his, uh, his book. God is a holy God, and we trifle with him at our peril. We dare not mess with God. 
Uh, and I, I think something I've been struck by uh, this week as I've been preparing this is that so, it's so rare for me to dwell on God's holiness. We do it often passing at church, perhaps when we confess, and, and, and that's important to do. But I do think Isaiah teaches us, dwell on the holiness of God. The Bible tells us that God is other, he is perfect, he is pure. And I think that's something that has so little place, in, in, certainly in my life, and I guess in many of us. And yet, at the same time, wonderfully, whilst God is also the Holy One of Israel, Isaiah says that he is the Redeemer. He is our Redeemer. The Bible tells us that God doesn't just leave us in our sin. He, is not, uh, he does not allow his wrath uh, to, to continue. The Bible tells us that God's wrath, his anger, his holy anger against sin, has been satisfied at the cross. He sent his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die in our place. Where we should have died, he took the death, he bore the wrath that we deserved. The wrath for our sins, for yours and for mine. And he promises that when we trust in him, we can be sure that his wrath, his anger at sin, has been dealt with. Sometimes we talk about propitiation, perhaps you've heard that word. Long word, not often used in church. It's a technical word the Bible often talks about. It's an important word. A propitiation is a sacrifice that deals with sin. That, uh, that, that removes wrath. And Isaiah looks ahead, and we can know that the Lord Jesus is that propitiation. He is the one who has dealt with wrath for our sake. That's the first thing. Uh, Isaiah says that uh, Babylon's fall has come because of God's punishment. But the second reason is that it has come because of the pride of humanity. Look with me at uh, verse 8 in uh, chapter 47. Isaiah continues, Now then, listen, you wanton creature, lounging in your security, and saying to yourself, I am, and there is none besides me. I will never be a widow or suffer the loss of children. Both of these will overtake you in a moment, on a single day. Loss of children and widowhood. They will come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and all your potent spells. You have trusted in your wickedness and have said, No one sees me. Your wisdom and knowledge mislead you when you say to yourself, I am, and there is none beside me. I guess at the heart of most, if not all, sin is the sin of pride. um, And Isaiah reveals that next to God's just punishment, it's human pride that has led to Babylon's fall. Uh, They have been living in complete disregard of God and his purposes. They've had no thought for the possibility that they will ever need to give account for how they've lived their lives, for their actions. Uh, C.S. Lewis, who uh, is a well-known Christian writer of the last century, who famously wrote the Narnia books, among others, uh, said that pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. Something to reflect on. Uh, because the proud heart progresses, I guess, through life with absolutely no thought of, of God at all. It's blinded by the self, by the sheer selfishness of living for oneself and promoting uh, our own ends. Uh, when I was at school, we um, read a poem, which is quite a well-known poem, I think. Uh, certainly, probably it's for people of a certain age, I would have thought, uh, called Invictus by a guy called William Henley. And you might not have heard, know or recognised the, uh, the title, but you've probably heard the final uh, closing verses. It says, I am the master of my fate... I am the captain of my soul. Whatever you make of the poetic quality of those words, it does capture something, I think, of 
the default setting of the human heart. We want total control of ourselves, and nothing else matters. We are the captain, the masters of our fate, the captains of our soul. It's no surprise that Frank Sinatra's uh, My Way is one of the most popular songs to request at funerals. So it's a lot, doesn't it, about where the human heart is heading. Uh, and Isaiah says that from such foundations, it's only going to be a downward spiral. So they've started off with this attitude of pride, and it just goes downhill from there on. There's disregard for God, uh, which leads to complacency and a false sense of security to go with, the pros- with prosperity which leads into more wickedness, verse 8. Now then, listen, you wanton creature, lounging in your security. They're secure. They think that nothing's going to happen. Saying to yourself, I am and there is none beside me. I'll never be a widow or suffer the loss of children. They're never going to face difficulty. And the Babylonians, I guess, are a bit like the the rich fool of Jesus' parable that you might remember. The man who thought that he would store up worldly wealth and sit back and enjoy it and was not rich toward God. So often, uh, that is the, the attitude of the human heart, that sense of pride. Well, things will always be like this. I can be secure in myself, and I don't need to worry. It was brought home to me once. Um, I was, uh, before I went into ministry, I spent a couple of years working selling men's suits in House of Fraser in rural Leamington Spa. A slightly odd, odd job in many ways, uh, but it was quite interesting for people watching. And one day we had a man who came in, it was on a Saturday, who was quite full of himself. He uh, was pretty, you know, slightly flashing the cash, a bit of a jack the lad, uh, shall we say. Uh, came in and uh, bought the most expensive suits that we had. Uh, made no secret of the fact that he was quite proud that he was the person who could afford the most expensive suit uh, and that he could also afford to uh, spend quite a lot of uh, money on our shirts and ties if we so wanted. And, you know, that was, that was great and he was very, very proud of himself. On the Tuesday, I was working, and he came back in completely transformed. He was literally a shadow, I guess, the man that had come in on the Saturday. Uh, This was the time of the financial crisis. He had gone into work on Monday morning, and he had discovered that he was going to be made redundant. And he was made redundant with immediate effect. He cleared his desk on Monday morning, and that was it. The company he'd served said they didn't want him anymore. And he came back to return the suit because he couldn't afford it. It was a a very, very striking picture. I've never forgotten it. He was a man on the Saturday who had the world uh, before him, who thought that nothing could shake his his prosperity, his situation, his security. And on Tuesday, things had just changed like that. And he was literally a broken man. He was saying, I'm I'm too old for people to employ me. I don't know where I'm going to go. I don't know where the next bill is going to come from. Very, very different. And Isaiah challenges that security and says, look, if you're putting your trust in those kind of things, you're going to get found out. Ultimately, the problem is that the Babylonians have been trusting in their own wisdom and security. Verse 10, Isaiah says, you've trusted in your wickedness and you've said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge mislead you. Uh, The Bible repeatedly warns against the folly of trusting in our own understanding and wisdom. The beginning of sin back in Genesis in the Garden of Eden was exactly that, that humanity thought that it knew better, trust in its own wisdom, that wisdom could be obtained outside of God, and that it's possible to rely on human wisdom. The Bible says, no, it's not. And nothing's changed. It's the way that the human heart is sadly wired. No, the Bible says that it's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. 
That's the beginning of wisdom because God's wisdom is the fountain of life. It's where life springs from. Ultimately, the Bible explains for us that God's wisdom is demonstrated in the cross. Uh, Paul famously talks about the cross being foolishness, but it is wisdom. It's a way that the world despises and rejects. The world can't understand how it is wise that a seemingly finished and crucified man can make forgiveness for sinful people. The world can't understand it. It is completely subversive to the way the world works. And yet the Bible tells us that ultimately God's wisdom is demonstrated in the cross. It's the promise of God in uh, the Magnificat to scatter the proud and exalt the humble. And the Bible promises that those who refuse to acknowledge God and who are content with their pride are going to be destined for a fall. It is, I think, the lie of the world that is reflected here in Babylon, this example, that we are rulers in control of our own destinies. And the truth of the Bible is very different. The Bible tells us that the true ruler of our lives and of the world must be God. And he will never have competition. He refuses to accept it. You can't have anyone else in that place. He calls us to turn to him and to bow the knee and call him Lord and trust in him. It was for the Babylonians, they found out it was too late. Isaiah said, there's no one who can save you now. And yet God is gracious to us, and he says that there is a chance. Turn away. Turn to him. Put your trust in him. Don't be deceived. Don't, don't let wisdom and pride deceive you. Pride will lead to a fall. Trust in God. Finally, uh, the third reason that Isaiah gives for us is pointless superstition. Read with me at uh, verse 12, just over the page. Isaiah says, Keep on then with your magic spells and with your many sorceries, which you have laboured at since childhood, or perhaps you'll succeed, perhaps you will cause terror. All the counsel that you've received has only worn you out. Let your astrologers come forward, those stargazers who make predictions month by month. Let them save you from what is coming upon you. Surely they're like stubble, the fire will burn them up. They cannot even save themselves from the power of the flame. If you pick up uh, most magazines or, uh, or newspapers, you will quite often find a horoscope section. Uh, you know, one of those things that's based on the, uh, the sort of, what it's called now, the star signs, isn't it, and so on and so forth. Something like that, isn't it? I don't really understand it. It's difficult to know, I guess, how many people take that sort of thing seriously. I guess there must be some people who do, otherwise they wouldn't publish them. Uh, but uh, in ancient Babylon, these things were very, very big business. They were uh, hugely um, influential. Uh, on the way that life uh, was carried out. Uh, astrologers and priests would spend years studying away to, uh, to learn the craft of magic and uh, divination. They had to master over 70 uh, tablets of lists d- detailing the uh, so-called omens that you could, you could uh, read to find out about what the future uh, held. They had to read scores of, uh, of notes on uh, what a particular spot on a sheep's liver that you'd sacrificed and cut open meant for the future. They studied charts to advise kings and rulers about what the future looked like, about what the stars meant. And Isaiah openly acknowledges that they've put in some hard yards. They've worked hard on this stuff. Keep on then with your magic spells, he says, with your many sorceries, which you've laboured at since childhood. Perhaps you will succeed. Perhaps you will cause terror. And yet, ultimately, Isaiah realises that it's completely futile. It's a total waste of time. All they've got to show for their efforts is exhaustion. 
All the counsel you've received has only worn you out. He says, you can almost see him mocking, can't you? What a waste of time. They might be sincere, but they've completely wasted their time. I think he highlights two ways in which this superstition has proved to be a uh, waste of time and completely powerless. The first is in verse 12. Isaiah says that superstition only deals in uncertainties. See in verse 12. Uh, Perhaps you'll succeed. Perhaps you will cause terror. Uh, However much effort the astrologers put into their work, ultimately they can never fully rely on their conclusions. Their only solution, I guess, is just to keep trying, keep working hard and hope that something pays off and it works out. They can't say with any certainty that what they, uh, what they deduct from this sheep's liver or from the pattern of the stars is actually going to pay off. How different that is to the Bible's testimony of the God who always proves himself faithful and trustworthy. He's the one who we can rest on. His service is perfect freedom, as the Church of England's Book of Common Prayer puts it. He doesn't lay us down with burden. He doesn't weary us out. His service is perfect freedom. It's a joy to serve him. Secondly, I think Isaiah says that they're powerless because superstitions can do nothing when the going gets tough. Uh, Look down at verse uh, 14 and following. Isaiah says, Surely they're like stubble. The fire will burn them up. They cannot even save themselves from the power of the flame. Here are no coals to warm anyone. Here's no fire to sit by. That's all they can do for you, those you've labored with and trafficked with since childhood. Each of them goes on in his error. There is not one that can save you. Isaiah's clear that judgment is fast approaching. Uh, What's worthless is going to be exposed and destroyed. There's there's no hope of escape. And in the time of crisis, ultimately Babylon's uh, wisdom and its uh, its sorcery and its superstition has just proved to be completely worthless. Isaiah uses that picture of a fire that is raging. In some situations, a fire can be wonderful. If you were uh, freezing cold... It will warm you up. Allow a fire to get out of control. It destroys everything in its path. And as hard as these words are, I guess, for us to hear, if we've been following Isaiah the last uh, month or so, we won't be surprised. Uh, Isaiah's constant message has been, just as we were um, reflecting on earlier, that whatever we turn to for satisfaction or security, if it's a horoscope or chopping up sheep's livers, whether it's uh, meaningless religious rituals, whether it's um, a career path uh, and the next promotion, whether it's a pay rise, whether it's a relationship. If we're not trusting in the living God, it's all pretty futile. We're in the same boat as the Babylonians were. We can sit there and laugh at them and say, oh, how stupid were they, trusting in some star signs, the hope that that would uh, sort everything out. Well, if we're not trusting in the living God, we're in exactly the same situation. Because it's only the living God in the person of the Lord Jesus who can sort out our biggest need, that is forgiveness. He's the one who makes us right with God. He's the one who calls us to turn to him and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. There's no one else who can deal with the situation that we find ourselves in and who can satisfy us in the way that he can. He calls us to turn to him. For Babylon, it's clear, says Isaiah, it's too late. You've had your chance. Game over. And yet for us, the Bible is so clear. God is gracious. He is not willing that any of us should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And he calls us now to turn away from those things that we uh, hold on to so deeply in our hearts, whatever it might be, and to turn to him, put our trust in him. He's the one who can be relied on. He's the one who provides the shelter 
in the time of storm? Why are we wasting time with things that can do nothing? It might be just as in passing that there are some people uh, this evening who have in the past, or maybe in the present, have been tempted to um, dabble with horoscopes or palm readings or spirit mediums or uh, tarot cards or something of those like. I'm sure there will be people here who have some experience of that, whether it's uh, something deep in the past or, or it's still something that has part of lives. Don't be fooled. The word world tells us that those things are just a bit of harmless fun. They won't do any harm. They're not particularly significant. You know, you can choose to do them, dabble in it if you want. It doesn't really matter. The Bible is really clear. They are hateful to God. God hates those things. They stand against all that he is, encouraging us to put our trust in them away from God. And he cannot let those things be. Uh, they can only enslave people. I remember when I was an apprentice, a chap who came on an Alpha course who had been dabbling uh, in tarot cards and was dreadfully enslaved by the lies that those things had taught him. Don't try for those things. They're not to be messed around with. The wonderful promise is that God promises forgiveness. He says that if you turn away from these things, I, I will set you free. If the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed, says the Bible. And it may be that you want prayer for those things, amongst other things. Do come and get that at the end, if that's something that you would benefit from. I'm sure Natalie and Peter would love to uh, pray through those things uh, with you. As we close, I'm sure many of you have um, seen the film Schindler's List uh, about the, the Holocaust. Um, in the book on uh, which it's based, the, uh, there's a very moving moment where the author uh, of the book um, reflects on... The, the incredibly dark possibility there might be um, no accountability or no judgment for the horrors of things like the Holocaust uh, and what a dark world that might be. Um, Isaiah's message to us this evening is sobering, isn't it? And yet at the same time it's also encouraging. What kind of a world would it be if sin was not punished, if God did not care about injustice, if he proved uh, inconsistent in his character? Isaiah tells us there's a God who takes sin seriously and he promises his judgment on those who don't turn to him in repentance because sinful pride isn't going to have the last word. And as we close, let's pray that we would learn from Babylon's example. It's sobering stuff. It's tough stuff to consider. And yet it's God's word and we need to take it as his truth and respond in repentance. Let's pray, shall we? We're going to have a moment of quiet maybe particular things that we know have come between us and God. Uh, and in a moment, we're going to have a longer period of reflection to, uh, to pray through some of these things on our tables. But just for the moment, in the quietness of our hearts, it may be something that the Lord is bringing to mind. It might not be horoscopes, but it might be something else that we know has taken the place of God. Maybe we have trusted in our own understanding of the situation, and we know that we need to get straight with him. We are aware that he is a holy God. And as Isaiah cried, woe to us, we are people of unclean lips. Lord God, we read these words and we tremble. Um, We confess that so often we want to sanitize you. We want to make you into some Santa Claus, some indulgent grandpa who just does what we want you to do. And Lord, we tremble at these words. You do promise judgment and you promise your wrath against sin. And we confess that we are people who have sinned in thought, word, and deed. 
And we pray that through the death of your son, we would find forgiveness, healing, restoration, and reconciliation with you. Draw us again to the foot of the cross, we pray. We thank you so much for the Lord Jesus who has dealt with our sin. He has dealt with your wrath. And we can approach you free. And we can call you Father. And we pray that as we reflect on these words and as we uh, think about them in our groups, that increasingly you would uh, impress them on our hearts and incline our hearts to keep your word. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.